Well, good morning, church. Hey, if we haven't had the distinct pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Ben Clausen. I lead the college ministry here at Grace Creekside. I think we have two college students up there, so you guys made it. The, the remnant, truly. Happy spring break, everyone. Um, I am very excited to be here with you guys today. Seriously, I, I think that the topic that we're going to speak of today is actually one of utmost importance. Um, we're taking a, a break, quick pause this week in our series on James. And when we do that, when we pause in series like this, what we like to do is circle back around to some of the really important theological tenets, foundational elements of our faith. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk specifically about God's nature as being triune, as God as a trinity, basically meaning that God is both one God and three persons. One God, three persons. Just God, but also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think this is worth talking about because often the idea that God is Trinity can be something that's really, really hard to, to think about, to process, and to, and to talk about too, right? I think often when we speak and think about the Trinity, we sound a little bit like uh, preschool children trying to communicate how to make certain recipes. Um, I don't know if you guys heard about what happened a few years ago. It was one of the, the few evidences that there is good in the world. Um, a preschool teacher had her entire class write down recipes, explaining how to make some of their favorite recipes. And I would love to just read some of these recipes to you this morning. Sound good? Sound good? We good with that? Great. So this is the recipe for Ethan's eggs. The serving for Ethan's eggs is 10. The prep time is one hour. The cook time, though, is only two seconds. And the cost is $3. The ingredients in Ethan's eggs are, of course, you know how to make eggs, pancakes, sugar, and Skittles. You buy all of that at Texas Roadhouse. And the instructions, of course, are first you put pancakes and then sugar, and that's it. You can cook it, but you can go to my house and I will give you eggs because my mom makes eggs all the time. You can eat them with a spoon. Don't put anything on them because that's how you make eggs with nothing. That's Ethan's eggs. Uh, next is Ariana's macaroni. Um, it takes, uh, you know, five minutes to prep it, but five minutes a day to cook it. So it's, you know, it's a slow cooker macaroni. And the ingredients are melted cheese, macaroni, apples, Strawberries, I like them because they're healthy. Toys, backpack, and doll. Mmm. Uh, you buy them at Walmart and Target. Wait, I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah, the mall. You know where you get ingredients. And the instructions are, first you put the macaroni in the stove, and now you put it in the end. What? Uh, put it to the oven and put cheese and more melted cheese. The oven has to be hot like fire, like a candle, like for birthdays. Now you need to tell everyone that it's time to leave. And I have to leave because I'm going to a party with a swimming pool. My sister says, why do you go to the swimming pool? And I say, because I like it. This is a recipe, granted. Now uh, I go home and I'm waiting for it not to be hot. And then my sister says, why do you do that? It's because you blow on the macaroni so it won't be hot. You need to wait. Now it's done. Now it's done. That's Ariana's macaroni. And then what I believe is just the crown jewel. Joe's Tacos. Joe's Tacos. You can tell a lot about the type of day that Joe was having when you read this. Uh, the serving, I don't even know. The prep time, like 45 minutes. Cook time, I think 55 minutes. Cost, I don't even know. Uh, there are the ingredients. He's not so sure about them. Potato, wait, is it potato or tomato? No tomato. And the instructions are, first, I don't actually know. <laughs> I really don't remember anything. Can I change this to cheesy roll-ups? Because they are super easy. There's only three stuff you need. White cheese, yellow cheese, and tortilla. I don't even want to make tacos anymore. I don't even know how. It's too hard to think about tacos. But I can make cheesy roll-ups. They're super easy. They come from Taco Bell. 
I need yellow cheese, and I don't know where to buy white cheese. I don't know how to make tacos. <laughs> we get that, Joe. Uh, cheesy roll-ups are better because I know how to make them. Let me think. One time I made candy, and it turned brown. Huh. I don't want tacos anymore. I like them, but I love cheesy roll-ups more. I don't like beans because they make me throw up. Ah, oh, Joe. <laughs> My mom made me eat a burrito one time with beans, and I threw up. Wait, I know how to make watermelon. It's easy. Just buy the watermelon and eat it. This was Joe's Tacos. <laughs> so take that recipe and make it at home later this afternoon. You're welcome. Um, well, that's just one of my favorite things ever. So why share it with you other than that? I share that with you because seriously, you get the idea. Often, we in our minds are at this level, and then there's some reality that's up here a kid trying to comprehend a, a recipe, there, there's just a gap there. And for us, even the most brilliant intellectual super geniuses of us, when we're trying to comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity, it can be like, like a preschooler trying to explain a recipe. It is hard, hard to think about the Trinity. It's hard to explain the Trinity. There's so many questions that like immediately come into your mind. Like, for example, uh, how does the, where does the Bible talk about God being a Trinity? Like, how's, how's the Bible lay out this argument? Does the Bible say anywhere that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God? Why doesn't the Bible actually use the word Trinity? Did you know that? The Bible doesn't actually use the word Trinity. And how does it all even work? How can God be one God but three persons? Why do we use the word persons? Why is it not people? I actually don't know the answer to that one. Uh, but they're individual persons. So there's so many questions that come into our mind. But listen, the doctrine of the Trinity is so, so important to our faith. It's so important to our faith. I think of the now famous quote by A.W. Tozer, who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's the most important thing about us. I actually think what comes into God's mind when God thinks about us is the most important thing about us, but I like the sentiment that his quote is getting at. It is imperative that if God is knowable and God has created us with capacity to know him, that we have to spend our lives, invest our lives in attempting to comprehend and know and worship who is this God that exists, the God who is. We have to know who God is. You know what the most important priority on all of our lives is? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And knowing God and loving God are intimately intertwined. So today, what I want to do is just essentially argue that the doctrine of the Trinity is not some irksome, burdensome, confusing doctrine to be explained away but a beautiful, inspiring, heart-warming reality to be celebrated. Today, we're going to see that it's great news that God's triune. It's great news that God is triune. It is a, a doctrine to be celebrated. We're going to see as uh, Dr. Michael Reeves, in his masterpiece of a book, Delighting in the Trinity, said, neither a problem nor a technicality, the triune being of God is the vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. The vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to essentially ask three questions. What, how, why? What, how, why? The what is going to be what do we even mean when we say the word Trinity? What are we referring to? Give us a definition of the word Trinity. The how is going to be how do we know that God's Trinity? Where do we get this idea that God is three in one? 
How do we understand that from the Bible? And then the why, of course, is the big question that comes into our mind when we talked about lofty theological truths. Why does it even matter at all? What difference does it make if God is three in one? So first, the what. And before we get there, I just want to acknowledge, uh, I love that it's spring break and there's so many kids in the room here this morning. Yes, we are talking about the Trinity. Big topic, huh? Um, but seriously, I'm, I'm so glad to have so many of you kids in here this, this morning because this is an amazing foundational topic for your faith. And God wants you to know him as Trinity. So families, I just encourage you, there will be things today that go over the head, but Seriously, circle back around to them and talk about the things we've talked about today. An amazing discipleship opportunity exists today in talking about the Trinity. So let's do it. So first, the what. What is the Trinity or who is the Trinity? About a year ago, I took a class. I'm at Dallas Theological Seminary right now, trudging my way through a master's degree. It's amazing. And a class that I took about a year ago was called Trinitarianism. Amazing class. And this was the definition of the Trinity that they provided us with. The one true God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in nature, equal in glory, and distinct in relation. Now, I like, that, I like that definition, I think it's good, but I think you can really flesh out an even simpler, more straightforward definition that looks like this. There is one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. It's a straightforward definition, but really I think that is is probably the most straightforward, simple, truthful definition of what we mean when we say God is triune. That's the Trinity. And this has, you guys know, this has been a hard thing to comprehend throughout the generations. So people have tried to use all sorts of analogies to make sense of the Trinity. They've said, well, God's like water or the water cycle. He's solid, liquid, and gas. One thing, but three different forms. But in reality, that, if you if you piece out what that's saying, it's a, it's a heresy. It's not true. And then they say, well, God's like an egg. There's the shell. There's the egg white. And there's, there's the yolk. It's one egg, but three, three different parts. But in reality, that's, that's not what God's like either. They're like, it's like a three-leaf clover. One clover, three parts. But all of these ultimately paint an impersonal picture of who our God is. God is the divine creator of the universe. We Listen, let's not compare him to an egg. It's not, that's not a, good, not a good comparison. But it gets at this idea that ultimately this is truth that is beyond our comprehension. This is truth that's beyond our comprehension. And you know, every time I get to one of these moments in Christianity that I realize that there's some truth that I'm just not gonna be able to wrap my head fully around, I'm, I'm frequently reminded of this quote from C.S. Lewis that I just love. He says, if Christianity was something we were making up, of course we would make it easier. But it isn't. We can't compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We're dealing with fact. Of course anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. I love this quote. See the idea it gets at? Of course we can't comprehend God. Of course the Trinity is a wonderful mystery. Do we finite beings really think if there are finite ideas that we can't comprehend, that we could comprehend a finite God? No way. The Trinity is a wonderful mystery. And we have to, to a certain extent, 
though we'll talk about our foundations and our beliefs, at some point we have to rest in the fact that what we're trusting in is, is, requires faith and there's mystery involved. But we hold that intention with the fact that God has indeed revealed himself to us. So let's talk about the how. How do we know that God is triune? I think if you, if you assume that you know nothing about the existence of God and his identity, and you try and like put together the pieces, you do like building blocks to the Trinity, like how do we build the argument to the Trinity? I think there are four steps that the Bible takes, four steps that the Bible takes to build the argument that our God is triune. Our God is triune. So the first one's gonna come from Genesis chapter one. If you have a Bible, that's where we're gonna start today, Genesis chapter one. That is page one of your Bible. Fun fact. So flip on over to Genesis one and buckle up because we're gonna do a little Bible drill. It's gonna, it's gonna be fun. We're gonna do a lot of, look at a lot of scriptures and it's gonna be fun. So again, why is this important? Because If the Bible doesn't say that God is triune, then we are claiming something really, really big that we don't need to be claiming. We are essentially straying from the truth of God. If it's not in here, then we have no foundation. We have to know what this thing, what this divine word given to us by God says about who he is. So the first step to the Trinity comes from Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. The first step to the Trinity that the Bible gives us is that God exists. God exists. This is a pretty, uh, let's just say, foundational reality to the Christian faith, but I, what I want to do is remind all of you that this truth flies right in the face of so much of what culture says and what the the current philosophical theological moment that we live in claims. And in fact, it goes against what the the theological mindset was back when Genesis was written. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but when Genesis was written, there was a major world belief of how the world came to be, and it was it's from this story known as the Enuma Elish. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this before, but it's a crazy story. This is what people believed centuries ago when Genesis was written. They believed that there were these like swirling waters. It's a vague story. Swirling waters, but one of the waters was a god and the other water was a god. So these gods, they got married and they had uh, children. And one of the children was named Marduk. And Marduk got really mad at his parents at some point, so he shot an arrow right into his dad. Um, Anyway, kids in the room. But from the dad's eyes flowed the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, naturally. And uh, using his dad's body, the, this god Marduk essentially made the world. And because there was water on this world, uh, there was vegetation. And Marduk was like, oh no, the vegetation's getting out of control. I need slaves to take care of the earth. So what did Marduk do? He made humanity. That was the story that people believed in when Genesis was written about the creation of the world. The world was a dead god's body and humanity existed to serve, to be slaves of Marduk. That, that was the belief. And yet into that speaks this story, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No war or strife that led to this. God, of his own volition, creates the earth. And you see as you go on through Genesis, he speaks and stuff appears. He speaks and action happens. 
It's an amazing, amazing thing. And this flies against the face of what our culture believes today too. Tons and tons of people believe that we exist here today solely because of the evolutionary process and chance. And yet, into that speaks Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. It's a beautiful thing. And what sort of God is this that created? Well, as you read on, you see that it's a good, he is a good God. He's the God who made you and me. 26 and 27 show us that. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What I'm getting at here is that the first step to the Trinity that the Bible takes is it shows us that God created, and he has this image that he created us in. Now, this doesn't tell us that God is triune yet, obviously. There's some hints, like uh, in verse 2, you see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. We saw just a minute ago in verse in 26, see how it says, let us make man in our image. He's speaking in the third person. But again, though this is plurality of language, none of it is saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, let us make God in our own image. It's not making that clear yet. But the first step is that God exists, that God exists. But as you read on through the book of Genesis, you see that there are these moments like that that sort of give you hints. And I really think that's what the Old Testament does. It doesn't say, here's the Trinity, but it opens up the door to the possibility of the Trinity. The Old Testament opens up the door to the possibility of the Trinity. And we know specifically another aspect of God from what Deuteronomy chapter 6 tells us. Deuteronomy chapter 6, there was this, um, this command that God gave to the nation of Israel known as the Shema. And this was essentially their pledge of allegiance. This is what they were to remember, recite constantly, write on their doorposts, say to one another all the time. This was the statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The second step to the Trinity that the Bible takes is that God is one. God is one. This, is, this flies right in the face of polytheism, which existed all over the place in the ancient world when this, is, this was spoken. Tons of people believed in so many different gods. I have a God for this. I have a God for this. I have a God for this. And God makes it really clear in the Old Testament. No, I'm the only one. It's just me. There's one God and one God alone. And echoes of this are all over the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, see now that I, even I am he, and there's no God beside me. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Isaiah 43, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And then Malachi 2.10, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The point is made again and again and again. God is one. God is one. God is one. But what I think is really helpful is to look at the word that's used every time for this word one. It's the Hebrew word echad. And in many instances, this word actually means multiple and unity. Multiple and unity. Like, think of Creekside, for example. We are, you could consider us one church. One church. There are many distinct members. There's a plurality of us that are unified under one name. One church. Grace, Bible, church, Creekside. Many members, one body. 
And in the Bible, it's the word that's used when describing in Genesis 2, when Adam and Eve come together in marriage and the two become one flesh. It's one ehad flesh, but it's two individuals together. It's a word used to describe a bunch of grapes. It's one bunch of grapes, but there are many individual grapes. It's multiple in unity. And really the point in all of that is that, like I said, the Old Testament is just cracking open the door. It's cracking open the door to the possibility of the Trinity. It's showing us that God is one, but could be more. God is one, but could be more. Now, the next step that we take we tracking? We good? Everybody awake? You lost an hour of sleep last night. We're kind of in the heart of seminary right now. It's good stuff. Now, the next step that the Bible takes is a big one, a really, really big step. And the step is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, then you know that there are at least two people within the Godhead, within who God is, God the Father and God the Son, Jesus That's what it gets at. So why do we Christians believe that Jesus is God? Let me run you through the the quickest ever explanation of why we Christians believe that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus is God because Jesus said he was God, because Jesus' actions confirmed he was God, because Jesus' followers said he was God, and because Jesus' followers died on that hill. So first, Jesus said that he was God. John 10, 27 through 31 says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand and don't miss this part. I and the father are one. I and the father are one. Jesus is claiming that he and the father are one and a lot of people might be saying, well, he's not claiming to be God here. He's just claiming like God and I are unified, we're one, but Look at how the Jews respond when Jesus says things like this. Look at the next verse. The Jews picked up stones, again, to stone him, to throw at him. This is what really, really got me, convinced me that this is really what Jesus is saying. He's claiming that he's God because look what the Jews do immediately after. They pick up stones to stone him because they believe he's a heretic. You can't claim to be God, and yet that's what Jesus is claiming here. Again, in John 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Just as Aaron said earlier, he showed this verse that it's true. When we see Jesus, we see the image of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We know what God is like because we know what Jesus was like. And then again in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Amazing verse. What he does here is he claims to have existed before Abraham. That's more than 2,000 years prior to Jesus' birth. He claims to have pre-existed Abraham, and he breaks grammatical rules here. That's kind of weird to say, before Abraham was, I am. But what he's getting at is he's getting at that he has upon himself the divine name of Yahweh himself, given in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses is at that burning bush, and he says, God, what's your name? Who do I tell them sent me? And he said, tell them I am who I am sent me, sent you. Yahweh, the divine name of God. So Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am. And again, you're like, maybe that's not what he's saying, but look at the next verse. So the Jews picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So not only did Jesus claim it, but his actions affirmed it. Just think about it. Jesus performed all sorts of miracles, 
He healed tons of people. He fed the masses with nothing. He cast out demons. He walked on water. He raised the dead. He was transfigured on a hill. God spoke over him. At his baptism, the spirit descended on him like a dove. And a couple of really significant things, Jesus accepted worship. You remember the book of Revelation when we studied that last semester? There were a couple of times that John attempted to worship the angel that was telling him things. And what did the angel say? Don't worship me. Worship is for God and God alone. You can't worship anyone other than God. And what does Jesus do? He accepts worship when people give it, give it to him, gave it to him. And then again, Jesus forgave people's sins. Jesus forgave people's sins. That's a thing only God can do. You remember that moment? Man is lowered on a mat in front of Jesus. He's paralyzed and he's wanting to be healed. What's Jesus say first? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees are like, who are you to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And what's Jesus say? Get up and walk. It's amazing. Jesus' actions confirmed it. And then, of course, nobody ever beat death. Nobody ever beat death. Jesus beat death. Not only did his words say it, his actions confirmed it. And then his followers completely agreed. John chapter one, John said this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was what? The word was God, exactly. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and made himself nothing. Made himself nothing. Jesus' followers agreed, and then Jesus' followers died on that hill. They died on the hill that Jesus was God. You heard that expression before? There's some hills that are worth dying on. There's some things that you, eh, you don't even want to really argue about this thing. It's not worth it. But what do, you, what do you die for? What do you stake your flag? What hills do you stake your flag on and refuse to, refuse to leave? Things that you're pretty dang convicted about. And I don't know if you know the life stories of all of Jesus' 12 disciples, but they all died horrific deaths, crucified upside down, boiled alive. It was, it was terrible the way that they died. Why did they die? Because they carried this message to the end because they believed that Christ died, Christ rose again, and Christ will come again, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. They believed this. So we believe that Jesus is God. This is the third step that the Bible takes to the Trinity. So at this point, we've got at least, there are two persons within the Godhead, right? There's God the Father and God the Son. But then Jesus makes it really clear, the fourth step, that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus says this in John 14, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you, the Holy Spirit who God will send. And then again in 2 Corinthians, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then skip to the end, for this comes from the Lord, who is who? Who is the Spirit. Jesus is affirming and here Paul is affirming that the Holy Spirit is God. So if our steps are, God exists, God is one, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, then the natural conclusion is that God is three in one. God is triune. You can put the argument together and see, no, we're not talking about just a God who is 
just God the Father. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's how the flow of argument goes. It's why they show up together in various places like the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of who? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then I love this moment that they all show up together at Jesus' baptism. And when he came up out of the water, that's Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There are various times that you see all three pop up together and it's amazing. But the hard question that we all have to wrestle with is well then why doesn't the Bible just come out and outright say it? Why doesn't the Bible just say, yep, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God, distinct in nature, one in glory and worship, one God, three natures. Why doesn't the Bible say it? And in reality, there are tons of parts of our faith that we have to wrestle with this in, right? There are tons of things that the Bible sort of gives us a picture of, and then we have to put words to it. And that's exactly what happened. Shortly after the Bible was written, there was this man named Tertullian who wrote, uh, was a big writer and pastor um, less than 150 years after, after the Bible was written and started circulating, and he invented this word trinitas in the Latin, which is where we get the Greek, or where we get the word trinity, where we get the word trinity. And this was this word that pictured who they realized and said that God was as trinity, but it finally gave them a sort of a name for what they were talking about. And you're like, well, why didn't the church start teaching this immediately and immediately start talking about the Trinity left and right? I don't know if you've ever studied early church history, but they were facing all sorts of persecution. They were just trying to stay alive and make disciples at the same time. So as soon as the church was able to, amidst persecution, get together in AD 381 at the Council of Nicaea, out of that came a very clarifying Trinitarian statement known as the Nicene Creed, which says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Who is he? God of God, light of light, very God of very God, and the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified as soon as they can. The Christian world gets together and makes it clear, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God. One God, three persons. They make it super clear as quickly as they possibly can. So, deep breath. You just went to seminary, kind of, didn't you? Wasn't that fun? Uh, we, did, we did bibliology. We did church history a little bit. That, that was fun. So what we're seeing here is that God is triune. The scriptures make an argument for it. But what I want to end by asking is just why does it matter? Why does it matter that God is triune? Does this actually affect my life in any way? And I really believe that the answer to that question is yes. The answer to that question is yes. Like I said, not a doctrine to dismiss, a doctrine to celebrate. Why? Well, because I think that the doctrine of the Trinity, God's triunity, explains his character, his actions, and our relationship his character, his actions, and our relationship. Who does the scripture tell us that God is? 1 John 4 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God knows God. Anyone who does not, know, does not love does not know God, because what? Because God is love. How is God love? 
I think Jesus actually answers how God is love in John chapter 17, where he answers the question, what was God doing before God made the world? You ever thought about that question before? What was God doing? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if they existed in eternity past, before they even made the world, what were they doing before that? And Jesus actually tells us, John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me. Why? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The only thing that we know that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit were doing before they made the world was living in a perfect, unified, loving relationship. Before God the Father created you and me, he was a father loving his son. He was a father loving his son and a spirit. He was a son loving the father and the spirit. He was a spirit loving the father and the son. And this explains his identity. Think about the gods of other religions who are completely singular, like think of Allah and Islam. How would Allah, who claims to be love and who claims to have never changed, how would he be love? How would he know what love is if before he created the world, the only thing that existed was Allah and the only thing for him to love was himself, himself. Loving yourself alone is not love, it's vanity. And yet our God, as being three distinct persons, always had an object for his love. Of course our God is love. And I think his identity as love, as triune, perfectly explains his actions, perfectly explains his actions, because our activity flows from our identity, right? We act like we are. We act like we are. If you're an introvert, what do you do? You skip parties. (laughs) You get time alone. If you're an adventure seeker, you ride roller coasters. If you love cooking, you cook delicious recipes. We do what we are. Our activity flows from our identity. So it makes perfectly sense that God did the things that he did. What did God do? God created the world. Why on earth would God create the earth? Because God knows how good relationship with himself is. And he wants to bring billions of people into relationship with himself. Of course he'd make the earth. Of course he'd make every single one of us. Because apart from existence, we would never know the goodness of relationship with God. Of course God would save his creation who strayed away from him. Of course he would. And of course he was able to. How'd God save us? Think about the Trinity in salvation. The Father says, I'm going to choose you before the foundations of the earth. I choose you and you and you and you and you. He chooses us. And then he says, I'm going to come down as God the Son, as Jesus, to make the way to live the life you can't live, to die the death that you deserve, and then rise in victory three days later, forging a path to salvation. And then when it's time, when God's drawing us to himself, how's he do it? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws us to God and then keeps our salvation sealed and secure for all of eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of course they do the things that they do. Of course they do the things that they do because God's activity flows from his identity and it makes perfect sense of our relationship with him. Why would God want us to be in relationship with him? Because again, he's a father who loves his son in the spirit. He's a son who loves his father in the spirit. He's a spirit who loves his father in the son. Of course God would want relationship with us because he knows how good it is. I love this quote, again, from Michael Reeves in Delighting in the Trinity. God is love because God is a trinity. For it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overwhelming kindness, 
the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If the Trinity were something we, would sh- we could shave off God, we would not be relieving him of some irksome weight. We would be shearing him of precisely what is so delightful about him. For God is triune, and it is as triune that he is so good and desirable. Amen. So what do we do with all of this? A brief charge. Treat God as triune. Treat God as triune. I think often we can, we can miss the reality that God is three persons. God is to be worshipped as three persons. We can pray to God as three persons. We miss God's triune reality. We come from the Bible church tradition, which can often be faulted. You've maybe heard the joke before. We can often be faulted for worshiping the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. <laughs> but in reality, same spirit rose Christ from the grave, is alive in us today. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. He's alive and active. And one of the best things that we can do is tune our hearts to the frequency of the Holy Spirit, to understand him, to lean into him, follow his lead, and to do the same with the Father and the Son. We can pray to each member of the Trinity. We can pause and reflect and research the Trinity. We can go deeper. I've quoted a lot of times today this book, Delighting in the Trinity. Um, This is one of the best books that I have ever read. And several pastors here on Grace say the exact same thing. I highly recommend this book. If you want to take a next step and research the Trinity even more, this is an amazing, easy read. It's hundred and some pages. It's great. And again, I charge you guys, talk later today with your families What do you understand about the Trinity or your friends or whoever you came with or just think deeply to yourself, pray, God, would you help me to understand this even more? And then finally, abide in the Trinity. Abide in the Trinity. I love John 15, five. It's one of my favorite passages. Paints a picture of the father as this gardener, the son as the vine and us as branches. And it's only through the Holy Spirit that we're able to abide in God and his love and just feel his love flowing through us. So abide in God, pray to the Trinity, worship the Trinity, spend time in the Trinitarian word of God, get around people who display the Trinitarian love of God, abide in the Trinity. And again, all of this, all of this is because it is great news that God is triune, not an annoying doctrine to dismiss, a beautiful doctrine to celebrate, beautiful doctrine to celebrate. What if, what if God's desire for every single one of us is that we would take one next step with him out of today, one next step and worship him, treat him as triune. What depth with God might be waiting for us on the other side? What depth with God? So to enter back into worship, what we wanna do now is just circle back around to the Nicene Creed that we read earlier. The church has for generations read the Nicene Creed aloud together. And what we wanna do is just read the same thing and affirm that we believe, we agree with the words that it says. So I'd like to invite you guys to stand up and we're gonna read this creed together and then we'll continue on in worship. It starts like this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, 
being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and he will come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Now let's celebrate that truth and worship.